Welcome to BDO's Legal Tech Talk podcast. We're joined by judges and legal professionals to discuss emerging trends, regulatory updates, and the latest headlines. We'll provide tips to help your law firms and legal departments make the most out of legal tech. Hi, everyone. I'm Jared Crafton, BDO's Forensic Technology Practice Leader. And I'm Daniel Gold, BDO's Managing Director of the Enterprise eDiscovery Managed Services Practice. Let's get started with this episode's exciting topic. David, you made it into the virtual podcast recording studio of BDO Legal Tech Talk. We are so happy to have you on the program today. Daniel, thanks for having me. Of course, it's always an honor sharing the podium with you. I'm glad we've got Jared here with us today. And of all the programs that we, you and I have done over the years, I think this one may be the most fun. We're going to find out. We're going to find out. But here's the thing, David, right? One of the reasons why I'm so excited is I'm flipping the table here. You're usually asking me the questions. This episode's going to be great because I'm going to ask you the questions. I hope you're ready for this. You are in the hot seat with Jared and I. All right. Wow. I feel like I'm on the $64,000 pyramid or some sort of game show, but um, it was a I great think we're show. rock and roll, counselor. All right. Well, let's do this. So, well, listen, in case any of our listeners have no idea who you are, that must mean that you haven't been in e-discovery in the last 20 years or so. But that being said, David, you are Relativity's Discovery Council Legal Education Director. I have had the distinct pleasure of sharing, as you said, the webinar panel with you a few times. It really does feel great to turn the microphone on you, by the way. And you have a very robust and highly impressive professional profile with accolades you clearly deserve. However, we often like to have our guests talk a little bit about themselves. It's much better to hear you say it. So if you could tell everyone a little bit about who you are, what you do, and let's start there. I guess the reason I'm here with you and the reason I work with you um, so much, Daniel, and the team at BDO is because I'm in legal technology. And how did I end up here? It was actually a story of tragedy. It was the uh, terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001. I had graduated from law school and um, was a reporter at the National Law Journal. And uh, when that tragedy occurred that day, ALM was gathering up the team to go out and cover it. I was at the National Law Journal, and uh, my colleague Monica Bay was the editor of what at the time was Law Technology News, now it is Legal Tech News. And so Monica and I went to the World Trade Center together. We uh, wrote articles that appeared in the National Law Journal, the New York Law Journal as well, and of course, Legal Tech News, because Monica was the editor. And we worked very closely on the September 11th coverage, and Monica said, hey, why don't you write an article for me too? So at the time, Bob Ambrogi, who I think a lot of your listeners know, he was my editor-in-chief. And so I said, hey, Bob, you mind if I write an article for Monica? And he's like, no, sure, that'd be great. So Monica and I came up with Technology on Trial, it became a large, pretty successful. It was an award-winning column. Um, others took it over after I left ALM as a full-time employee. And the thing is, I've really never left ALM. I still write for Legal Tech News. And so I've been writing with them for over 20 years. After that, it was the sort of thing, you know, journalism is a job that you really love. You know, you wake up each morning and say, wow, how much fun am I going to have today? And one of the things that Monica used to say, you got to decide, do you want to be a lawyer or do you want to be a journalist? I'm like, I want to do both. 
And she's like, well, good luck with that. I think I have. And it's one of the reasons I'm grateful to relativity. I went in house for several years doing uh, policy legal work, had some interesting First Amendment issues, some interesting commercial issues, and was an analyst and counsel at 451 Research, uh, now part of Standard & Poor's, where I covered e-discovery and information governance. And one of the companies I covered was a little company called Kekura, who had this revolutionary software product called Relativity. And of course, Kekura now is, is Relativity. And it was, uh, you know, I, they were a client, a company I covered. And after a few years of that, they said, hey, how'd you like to come work for us? And Andrew Sager, the founder, was there. And Nick Robertson, of course, Sean Gaines. It was a great team. Sager put it to me this way. We wanted to give something back. And that was free CLE and free legal education. And so I write a lot. I still write for Legal Tech News, write for the Relativity blog and um, write for various uh, articles. I think you and I have discussed a law review article I wrote for the University of Florida Law Review uh, Forum a couple of years ago. So I like to think that this is a long-winded way of saying, started at September 11th and enabled me to, uh, and God, we can't make light of that tragedy. So many people lost so much, but it, it changed the course of my career. And so I am the lawyer slash journalist. I sometimes refer to myself as more of a talking head because we have a legal team in the office of the general counsel that does the real legal work. I guess I'm more of a quasi-law professor and legal speaker than anything else. And one of the great things that enables me to do is work with you, Daniel Gold. You know, that's interesting. All the years I've known you, I didn't know the 9-11 backstory. That's actually really interesting. It changed a lot of people's lives. Do you ever think about, like, take a step back and think about And I'm serious, David, the dent in the universe that you've likely had in the lives of legal professionals as a result of the multiple, the hundreds of sessions that you've hosted? You know, I like to think so. But Daniel, one of the things is we've all got to remain humble. And I like to think that I have had an influence and I like to think that I've helped people out along the way. There's a an expression that I sometimes use, and it's sort of an awful expression, but the expression is cemeteries are full of indispensable people. And the sort of thing is you always want to know that uh, you're doing something worthwhile, helping people out, but you also got to be humble about it and remember that, hey, you know, other people are really, really smart. Other people work really, really hard and we're all out there uh, doing our thing. And has technology always been a passion of yours, David, or is it more so just been a niche that you've discovered as you've gotten deeper in this world? Jared, I should not admit this, but no, I am not one of these people who was an inherent technologist. And using the 9-11 example, there were people at the National Law Journal and Law Technology News that like, why is this a legal technology story? Well, it was because all those legal records were blown up and there were just no records. And that was before the days of the cloud. I'm really dating myself now, but when you turn that clock back 22 years, you didn't have what BDO has, what we have at Relativity, and that stuff was gone. And that really piqued my interest in technology because, you know, obviously the technology was there, but it certainly wasn't commercialized. 
and just the way that technology has changed everything. You know, growing, I grew up uh, in Houston. My dad was with NASA and there were a lot of kids who had that real, real interest in technology from their parents. And, you know, my dad being at NASA gave me a little bit of an interest, but I had much more of an interest in the law. But I'll say one thing. I am sure glad that I had a career that went into technology because to use the trite expression, the techno lawyers are going to be really, really in a good spot. And Daniel and Jared, you probably know this too. Daniel is more on the legal side, but he's a great techno lawyer. Jared, you're on the technical side, but you know the legal stuff as well. 10, 12, 15 years ago, we were talking about tar and how tar was going to revolutionize everything. And, and I wrote articles on this. Our Relativity blog team did a great graphics for this one. It was Lola V. Scadden Arps about whether you're practicing law if you do document review. And there was some dicta at the end of the case where the judge said, well, you know, if a machine can do it, it can't be the practice of law. Well, I wasn't sure that was true back then. And it's certainly not true now. And so at the time, like, great. For review attorneys, is TAR going to take our jobs? Now, of course, fast forward to 2022, now 2023, is chat GPT going to take our jobs? But I really think the uh, moral of the story is if you are a techno lawyer or if you are a technology person, boy, is that going to help you out a lot. And so if, if the more you know about technology, the less likely you're going to have a HAL 2001 nightmare where the robots take over. And then here's where I want to get your opinion on this for 2023. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, ChatGPT, yeah, we're we're totally going to embrace that. And you've got these articles, David. Really, right? You've got these articles where, like, these law firms are putting out press releases all over the country. They are embracing ChatGPT while simultaneously I read an article in the Wall Street Journal about how professors are finally understanding what ChatGPT essays look like, and they can identify and spot it. They'd use words like you. It's like a spectacular influx of nonsense. One professor described it as, when you write your own piece of work and you apply critical thinking, which is what we do as lawyers, right? And you apply your own critical thinking, it's like eating a really great steak. But when ChatGPT puts together an essay, it's like taking every single item on the menu, putting it in a food processor and serving it as soup, right? It doesn't taste good. So here we are. It's like the iPhone. It's like everyone embraced the iPhone, but we're resistant about technology that helps us do our jobs better as lawyers. But we're embracing ChatGPT. David, what kind of world are we living in when we can't use technology-assisted review and advanced analytics and conceptual searching? But heck, we've got ChatGPT to help us write our motions for summary judgment. What's happening, David? Well, first of all, Daniel, the world is fraught with peril. And uh, yeah, it's popular. Yeah, it's cool. But ChatGPT4 is going to be with us soon. And any technology is going to advance. I like what Professor Thomas DeGregory of the University of Houston said many years ago. It was a theory of technology. And it's like, for every problem technology creates, more technology can solve. But um, on the ChatGPT thing, sometimes it's wrong. For instance, they published recently this thing, the top 10 lawyers in e-discovery. I'm on that list. Now, granted, at the bottom of the list, I think, but there are people who are practicing e-discovery law every day. I am writing about it. I'm commenting on it. I put educational programs together. I am not one of the top 10 e-discovery lawyers in the country. Another thing is, I think there was a professor who came with a novel idea to ensure academic integrity. And that's like, I guess some of us are old enough to remember the blue book when you had to do exams and write them out in the blue book. That's how you get around chat GPT, make those students write their exams. But then wait a minute, 
we stop teaching cursive handwriting in schools. You're going to block print that exam. It's not very fast. I went to law school at the University of Florida's Levin College of Law, go Gators. We still had blue books when I was there in the 90s. So maybe the more things change, the more they stay the same. I guess that is the moral of the story. You know, it's interesting. My 16-year-old told me that she didn't perform as well on a recent test because she had to actually handwrite the test, that typing on the computer is much better. It makes you wonder how much technology all the students have access to, including chat GPT while they're taking the test. Look, I, you know, I'm old enough to remember. I, I mean, I went to a law school. I started in 99 and we had all the blue books, right? And for those unfamiliar with it, the blue book is quite literally, what was it like a, like a five by five uh, booklet of lined paper. And you had to write out what is the statement of facts, the issue, the rules of law that are applicable, how it's applied to the statement of facts, and you write your conclusion. And even if you had really bad handwriting, which, by the way, we all do as doctors and lawyers, and I'm worse because I'm a lefty. The listeners can't see on the screen my handwriting here on my, on my tablet. It is really bad. And I will tell you that it does seem like it that is something that is an issue. But when we look at, okay, so ChatGPT is just one example. But the other example that we see in you know, all the issues that we're going to see downstream, now we've yeah. got all these problems that are popping up. And we've, Jared and I have been talking to other legal professionals about this as well. All these other problems with ephemeral data, right? And there's some, I think at this point in time, I think that there's some outdated case law from 2018 because you've got all these stories with WeChat and WhatsApp and Snapchat and uh, all these other chat apps. And they all fall under this bucket of ephemeral apps, meaning you write it and it disappears, right? David, can you talk to us a little bit about some of the dangers in e-discovery law as it relates to ephemeral messaging apps? Yeah. And Daniel, we're going to keep with our theme and maybe you want to call this episode, the more things change, the more they stay the same episode. I'm um, going to do, Jared, that this is why we have David. This is it. We're doing it. We are doing it. <laughs> I, and I do realize I use that expression too much, but it does convey the image I want it to convey. Sanctions cases are always very popular in CLEs, podcast programs, because lawyers want to make sure they know what the sanctions laws are so they don't get sanctioned. Spoliation of evidence is a big problem, and that is one of the fears of ephemeral data, that you are going to be spoliating evidence. And Daniel, you and I have discussed before the 2015 amendments to the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure and how it became a little bit more difficult to get the nuclear option of the most serious sanctions under what is now Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 37E2. And so and on the one hand, it's tougher to get those sanctions. You've got to show the intent to deprive. Is the use of an ephemeral app evidence of an intent to deprive? No, certainly not on its own. People use them all the time. Enterprises, organizations use them all the time for different things. You've got to show that intent to deprive, but you shouldn't take too much comfort in that because as Judge Francis taught us in the CAT 3 case, there are other ways to sanction bad behavior when you discovery than 37E. There's 37B if you violate a court order doing it. Judges have many, many tools at their disposal to correct this. So just the use on its own is not, I don't think, indicative of intent to deprive, but it's controversial. The reason I said, you know, let's call this one, the more things change, the more they stay the same too. I will bet, Daniel, you and I are both old enough to know when you went into meetings and you brought a yellow legal pad. Remember the yellow legal pad? I don't want to speak for anyone else, but I've been in meetings where the instruction was, 
This is highly confidential client information. Nobody take notes. And so if you're standing there with a yellow legal pad with an instruction, nobody takes notes, is that any different than using an ephemeral app? I don't think so. And no one in the one meeting I'm thinking of, nobody was trying to do anything that was unethical or dishonest. It was, hey, we're going to protect client confidences. By the same token, some people may feel the use of ephemeral apps is protecting client confidences. Now, that's not to say it's always that case. There have been cases where it was shown that, okay, there's some real unkosher stuff going on here. But once again, why they have us to give CLEs, why we have lawyers to practice in these areas, because it's good to know where the limits and the boundaries are. Is this a topic that more people are asking about these days? You know, I guess for the past three months, the topic people ask about is chat GPT. I would say probably three years ago, there was a lot of talk about it because there was big litigation on the issue. It ebbs and flows. I think that you know, one of the issues that has come up recently is protective orders. We talked about that at both the University of Florida e-discovery conference on that judicial panel. I've got the honor of moderating that one. And I do the uh, Relativity Fest judicial panel, of course, the original one as well. And that came up because it's not just protective orders to protect confidential data, because data privacy is certainly a big topic, but it's also the use of sealing court records. So you've got those two methods, and one could argue it's protecting data privacy, but there's a question about whether it's gone overboard. And I don't want to speak for Judge Matthewman, but I think he feels that it's gone overboard. There's too much ceiling. And uh, because, you know, we are supposed to have open courts. We do not have star chambers where things are done in secret. So it's a really big issue. Then again, you know, you look at the Europeans and, and people from other jurisdictions all over the world who are thinking, my gosh, those crazy Americans and their broad discovery they want everything in the kitchen sink. So there's got to be a real balance. And so I think you'll both remember several years ago when we had the Fitbit cases and one resulted in a murder conviction because the husband Fitbit data sort of sold him out on that. So all sorts of data. And, you know, we talk about the Orwellian nightmare or the HAL 2001 nightmare. Data privacy is a really important issue. And so you got to balance it. You got to balance e-discovery and, and the needs and, and the right to evidence. I mean, we want people to have the evidence they need to go to court. We also don't want electronic invasions of people's homes. And I did an article for Artificial Lawyer last year that was protective orders in USE discovery, a panacea for privacy, question mark. And that question mark was very intentional and very necessary because some would argue that it certainly is not a panacea for privacy and that any discovery, private stuff does come out. That's why we have attorney eyes only. That's why we have confidentiality designations in a lot of ways. And Jared, you're our technologist here. You're not going to like me saying this, but it's sure most of the time more of an art than a science, but it is both. I certainly agree with that. Uh, and I remember there was a, I think there was a case where a smart water meter put somebody behind bars because Indeed. they were, they're hosing blood off their deck uh, and they saw water usage in the middle of the night. So yeah, Jared, those kind of cases are really interesting and it's why technology is so important. I find them fascinating. Well, what other predictions do you have for 2023? What are, what are the other hot topics coming our way? 
You know, it's really interesting. Um, we have a new chief legal officer at Relativity. Uh, it's Adam Weiss. He went out on a limb in our predictions webinar, and the uh, prediction, along with Mike Quattararo, they are both predicting a somewhat robust economy this year. And so Mike was really big on the robust economy. And Adam specifically was, you know, the age of crypto isn't over yet. So Adam was bullish on crypto. Mike was bullish on the economy in general. So I think those were important. Chris Dale of the eDisclosure Information Project was big on saying that, you know, there may be real ethics and disciplinary problems with lawyers who don't take proper um, protection of data. And you know this brings us full circle to a topic Daniel and I have discussed. 2012, the amendments to the ABA model rules of professional conduct, specifically comment eight to rule 1.1 about the need to learn technology. One of the things that happened there, and I was on a panel in 2012 when this came up, and the idea was that this thing is buried in a comment to the rule. And, and the model rules of professional conduct are advisory. The catch on that, though, is that many states base their ethics rules on that. And now, and, and Bob Ambrogi does a great job of covering this, um, now there's a bandwagon in the states. It's over 40 states. I'm embarrassed to say I don't have the exact number. But I want to say over 45 now, and we only have 50 states plus Puerto Rico, D.C., and uh, other jurisdictions. It's getting to the point where you really have an ethical responsibility to know technology. I think the California ethics opinion from a few years ago is great. You got three choices. Know the technology, retain the services of somebody who does, or your third option is decline the representation. That's right. So, That's right. And, uh, and yeah. Justice Kennedy yeah. even talked about that as well in our podcast and talked about the responsibility to bring somebody on board. And she talked about how New York is very forward-leaning with respect to that. California as well, very forward-leaning with that. By the way, you mentioned Mike Corderero. He was also a guest here on the podcast, episode number two, for those who haven't listened to it yet. Worth going back to listen to it. Mike is very bullish on a lot of the topics that he's got, which is why he's such an entertaining and informative and educational guest. David, if I were to sum up what I, what I think I'm hearing for 2023, here's what I'm thinking. Tell me okay. where I'm wrong, counselor, okay? What I'm right. thinking is that where we're going with both artificial intelligence, you know, for real this time, data privacy related to the internet of things, right? We're really going to see a confluence of these two big things and also see proportionality and ethics come into play a lot. Is that what it sounds like, David? Nice summation, counselor. I think you're spot on. And I think we're already seeing that. And I think a big theme is going to be the tension between data privacy and e-discovery. But that's really nothing new that's been going on. Is chat GPT a fad that's going to go away? I don't think so. But I, I don't think it's going to be like it has for the past three months where it's been the top item on every conversation. And, you know, I know we already have TAR 2.0, TAR 3.0. Let's call this, I don't want to call it TAR 10.0. Why don't we call it oh, TAR of the future? Nee, 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 nee. Put in some space age sci-fi music it. in the background because it's really tar on steroids. Love it. Jared, any last thoughts for David? Uh, David, this has been so much fun. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. It's really great visiting with both of you. And uh, whether it's on a relativity platform or the platform of our excellent partners at BDO, let's do it again sometime soon. Thanks so much, David. Thank you.
Thanks for joining us on BDO's Legal Tech Talk podcast. If you're enjoying these podcasts, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe for more episodes. Head over to BDO.com for a list of all our episodes, transcripts, resources cited, and links on how to get in touch with us and continue the conversation. Until next time, this has been another episode of BDO's Legal Tech Talk.